I told you I was coming back with some shit about joint capsules. I'm here to deliver on this promise. But before I do, I am checking in. It's October 3rd. Uh, God dang, COVID has been going on for a long time. So, hope you're doing well. This still sucks for everyone. Um, Hopefully you've been able to find some activities to keep you occupied in this interesting time of life. Um, Second year DPT student now, but this week currently not on campus. It's been kind of a crazy week for us. Um, Basically some students in the dorms on my campus came down with the COVID and kind of ruined it for everybody else. So I hope they're doing okay, but I'm also kind of pissed because we were like the only students allowed on campus anyways. And we PT students have been doing so good with the PPE and the sanitizing and the temperature checking and the symptom checker before coming to campus. I mean, we have been so good. It just seems so punitive that like the entire campus is just locked down. And I say this because the dorms are like really far away from most of the buildings that we need to access, but I guess that's uh, neither here nor there for the moment. So hopefully at the end of next week, we'll get some news in regard to coming back. They said two weeks originally, and I'm really hoping that that maintains, you know, that date is maintained. But um, been through this before in March, and that turned into like four months. So I am just trying to keep my eyes on the prize here. And I'm actually curious how other students at other schools have been affected. So if you have info that you're willing to share, um, I can keep it private. It's more for personal information. If you want me to share, that's cool too. But uh, if your school has been affected by COVID or if it hasn't been affected by COVID and you're like just totally whatever you're doing the PPE but your labs haven't changed and all of that and you're able to just kind of carry forward please let me know I am so curious um part of this just feels like it's just bad luck being you know in a program that is part of a large campus and not part of a a hospital system for example or a medical center so I feel like you know uh that has been to our detriment because we're kind of at the whim of the you know broader university decisions rather than like if we were separated in like a satellite campus or if we were part of a medical center we would just kind of be business as usual so um, dm me on instagram that's my preferred method at nikki dash ray that's n-i-k-k-i-d-a-s-h R-A-E.
and let me know. Let me know how it's going. Without further ado, nerds, we're talking about joint capsules today. So I had mentioned in the last episode, if you were kind enough to listen, it was not anatomy related. It was just kind of like ethereal chit chat. But um, joint capsules are it today. And I especially want to talk about the shoulder, the glenohumeral joint, glenohumeral joint capsule, because this one is pretty interesting. And uh, OIAs are boring, guys. So (laughs) we're talking about some more functional and interesting stuff today. So hopefully you're down with the cause. So reading from Gray, a little bit of background info about the GH joint capsule and the shoulder joint itself. Um, When I say shoulder today, I am talking about the glenohumeral joint and not the scapulothoracic joint because technically... If you're in the know, um, the shoulder is actually made up of two joints, one being the scapula articulating on the rib cage. Um, and actually, you know what? I lied. There's also the acromial clavicular joint, which is part of the um, connection of the scapula, your shoulder blade, to the clavicle. So there's that too. Um, But today when we talk about shoulder, we are talking specifically about the upper arm bone, the humerus, as it articulates or forms a joint upon the glenoid of the scapula, which is what most people when they talk about shoulder is what they're talking about. So shoulder today synonymous with GH joint glenohumeral. So according to Gray from Gray's Anatomy, a long time ago version, but things don't change much says here um, the shoulder joint is a ball and socket joint the bones entering into its formation are the hemispherical head of the humerus and the shallow glenoid cavity of the scapula an arrangement which permits of very considerable movement this is true while the joint itself is protected against displacement by the tendons which which surround it the ligaments do not maintain the joint surfaces in apposition because when they alone remain, the humerus can be separated to a considerable extent from the glenoid cavity. Their use, therefore, is to limit the amount of that movement. The joint is protected by an arch formed by the coracoid process, the acromion, and the coracoacromial ligament. The articular cartilage on the head of the humerus is thicker at the center than at the circumference, the reverse being the case with the articular cartilage of the glenoid cavity. The ligaments of the shoulder are the articular capsule, the coracohumeral ligament, the glenohumeral ligament, the transverse humeral ligament, and the glenoidal labrum. So let's talk about the articular capsule because that's why we're here. The articular capsule completely encircles the joint, being attached above to the circumference of the glenoid cavity beyond the glenoidal labrum, below to the anatomical neck of the humerus, approaching nearer to the articular cartilage, above than in the rest of its extent. It is thicker above and below than elsewhere and is so remarkably loose and lax, according to Gray, that it has no action in keeping the bones in contact, but allows them to be separated from each other 
more than 2.5 centimeters. An evident provision for that extreme freedom of movement, which is peculiar to this articulation. I love the wording. (laughs) It's so classic. Gray continues, it is strengthened above by the supraspinatus muscle, below by the long head of the triceps brachii, behind by the tendons of infraspinatus and teres minor muscles, and in front by the tendon of subscapularis. There are usually three openings in the capsule. Ooh, that is interesting. One anteriorly, below the coracoid process, establishes a communication between the joint and bursa beneath the tendon of the subscapularis. The second, which is not constant, is at the posterior part, where an opening sometime exists between the joint and the bursal sac under the tendon of the infraspinatus. The third is between the tubercles of the humerus for the passage of the long tendon of the biceps brachii. Moving on, we'll talk now about the coracohumeral ligament um, because the ligaments do really work together with the capsule around the joint. So let's talk about these ligaments as well. This ligament, coracohumeral ligament, is a broad band which strengthens the upper part of the capsule. It arises from the lateral border of the coracoid process and passes obliquely downward and lateralward to the front of the greater tubercle of the humerus, blending with the tendon of supraspinatus. This ligament is intimately united to the capsule by its hinder and lower border, I guess hinder and lower border. Again, this is, this is an older text. But its anterior and upper border presents a free edge which overlaps the capsule. So something that I find really interesting here that this section mentioned is that the tendon of supraspinatus does blend in with the capsule and the coracohumeral ligament. So we'll talk about that more in a second, but think about that as it relates to the function of that muscle. Moving on, the glenohumeral ligaments. There are a few. In addition to the coracohumeral ligament, three supplemental bands, which are named the glenohumeral ligaments, strengthen the capsule. These may be best seen by opening the capsule at the back of the joint and removing the head of the humerus, (laughs) if you are ever lucky enough to do so. (laughs) Um, If not, you'll have to imagine. On one on the medial side of the joint passes from the medial edge of the glenoid cavity to the lower part of the lesser tubercle of the humerus. A second at the lower part of the joint extends from the under edge of the glenoid cavity and the under part of the anatomical neck of the humerus. And a third ligament at the upper part of the joint is fixed above to the apex of the glenoid cavity close to the root of the coracoid process and passing downward along the medial edge of the tendon of the biceps brachii is attached below to a small depression above the lesser tubercle of the humerus. If you listen carefully, you might hear my dog snoring. Um, In addition to these, the capsule is strengthened in front by two bands derived from the tendons of the pectoralis major and teres major, respectively. 
so again, um, this section pointing out that muscle tendons um, are blending in to these ligamentous structures as part of the support of this joint. So again, think about that in relation to the function of the joint and the muscles. We're going to move on and talk about two more ligamentous structures. The first being the transverse humeral ligament. This is a broad band passing from the lesser to the greater tubercle of the humerus and always limited to that portion of the bone which lies above the epiphyseal line. Unpack that. <laughs> it converts into the intertubercular groove into a canal. What that is trying to say is this groove that the biceps tendon is laying in, the bicipital groove is what most people call it, um, by this ligament, which stretches over the biceps tendon, over this groove transversely, as it's called, the transverse humeral ligament, it takes that groove, that bicipital groove, the intertubercular groove, and makes it a canal. It makes it a circumferential structure. So basically what it's trying to say is this transverse humeral ligament covers up the tendon and makes like a circular situation out of this groove, okay? Gray continues, it is the homologue of the strong process of bone which connects the summits of the two turbicles in the musk ox. To be honest with you, I'm not even really sure what that means, but I think it's just, again, restating that the intertubercular groove or the bicipital groove in which the biceps tendon, long, long head of biceps brachii tendon, rests in, becomes a canal, and uh, it rests between the greater and lesser tubercles of the humerus. One more structure here, the glenoidal labrum is a fibrocartilaginous rim attached around the margin of the glenoid cavity. It is triangular on section, the base being fixed to the circumference of the cavity, while the free edge is thin and sharp. It is continuous above with the tendon of the long head of the biceps brachii, which gives off two fasciculi to blend with fibrous tissue of the labrum. It deepens the articular cavity and protects the edges of the bone. So that's a lot to unpack right there, but I think what's very interesting about this particular joint, this particular articulation, that being the glenohumeral joint, is that we know that this joint is allowed incredible movement. Being a ball and socket joint like the hip, it already has movement in three planes. But the range of motion of this joint is so much greater than most other joints in the body. In fact, it is the most mobile joint in the body by a long stretch. And what allows this joint the freedom to move is the supportive structures around it um, that prevent for the most part, they try their best to prevent dislocation. Because the glenoid 
cavity is so much smaller than the head of the humerus. They have to do this because just by nature of looking at the bones themselves, they don't fit together in a way that without these structures um, would allow the, you know, survival of this joint without subluxation. So think about the rotator cuff. Think about supraspinatus. Think about infraspinatus. Think about teres minor. And the jobs of these three muscles to, as they contract, not just to do their muscle, whether it's, you know, supraspinatus working on abduction, abduction, or infraspinatus and teres minor working on external rotation, or even if you have subscapularis working on internal rotation. The alternative or secondary action of these muscles is to protect this joint. If you think about it, if you perform an isometric contraction at your glenohumeral joint, meaning you contract the muscles of the joint without actually moving the joint, what they are doing is stabilizing. They are pulling the head of the humerus tighter into the glenoid. So what they do by their secondary action is to pull the head of the humerus into that teeny tiny little shelf created by the glenoid to make this joint more stable. So when you have the, for example, let's talk about um, supraspinatus since it's an easy one. Supraspinatus performs the first like 15 degrees of abduction and then the deltoid takes over for it. But in those first 15 degrees, yes, it is abducting, but as it's abducting, it's pulling that humeral head closer and closer into the joint to allow the roll and glide happen at the joint without it just completely separating. So the rotator cuff muscles are very important in doing that. But as well, the articular capsule um, is blended into those tendons. And so um, because of the flexibility of this joint, because it does have the ability to allow so much freedom, um, all of these structures are working very hard together to prevent excess motion. So um, why do we care so much about joint capsules? Well, you know, they're a very easy structure to overlook if you're just an anatomy student, you know, really, really focusing on, got to memorize those O's, I's, and A's. But the articular capsules are very functional in providing stability. And in the PT world, for example, or the orthopedic world, a lot of our tests for shoulder stability have to do with finding the place in the capsule that has been weakened by an injury. So for example, we have certain tests, special tests that we can do where we are moving the humerus in the joint and pressing on certain aspects to see if there's extra stretch. And if there is extra stretch, it means that that particular area that we've targeted with that test um, has been weakened by deformation of some kind and being you know um, that this is ligamentous tissue once it's experienced some kind of plastic deformation meaning the tissue mechanics of 
this structure have been loaded too much to the point where they cannot recover, that stretch tends to stay. So by testing, you know, uh, for example, the posterior part of the capsule with a uh, posterior capsular test or inferior capsular test, we are seeing if that part of the capsule moves too much. So, um, and if you find yourself in that situation where you have some excess mobility in the joint, you are very likely relying more on the rotator cuff muscles and the pectoral muscles and all the muscles that insert into the structures that we've talked about to do that job that the capsule is not able to do as well as it could when it was a bright, shiny, new, young and healthy structure. So... Capsules are important. <laughs> lots of lots is going on with the capsule. So um, hopefully you found this little tidbit about the glenohumeral joint capsule interesting enough to keep you on the line here. And if you have any questions, please do let me know. Um, again, always available via DM at Nikki-Ray on preferably Insta. Um, I do have Facebook and I do have Twitter, but I tend not to really check them very often. So if you want to hit me up, Insta it is uh, at Nikki-Ray. Thank you for listening, nerds, and wishing you a wonderful start to your October.